So if you weren't with us last week, we kicked off a brand new series. We're going to be marching through the book of Ephesians for about the next four months. And a little bit of background about this letter, since we're only in the second week, it's important to remember. Paul is the author of this letter. It's a circular letter, which means that it's being passed around to multiple churches in Asia Minor, but Ephesus is on the address. But the church at Ephesus took it and then passed it off to somebody else. Because remember, we don't have copy machines in the first century AD. So these letters are being passed from place to place. And Paul actually wrote this letter while he's in prison. So this is, his, this is one of his prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Those are these letters that he wrote while he was in prison. And last week we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 1, which sort of was a benediction to the letter as a whole. And we kind of organized that part of the letter into three main sections. Spiritual blessings that came from the Father, spiritual blessings that came from the Son, and then spiritual blessings that came from the Spirit. So after Paul outlines that part of chapter 1, we now move into verses 15 through 23, which focus on the prayer report. Now, what's very common in many of Paul's letters is after his initial greetings, he has a section of the letter that focuses on a prayer report, praying for specific people, interceding on behalf of people, giving praise to God, whatever might be happening in all of his different letters. But here in verses 15 through 23, this is the prayer report of Paul's letter to Ephesus. Now, you'll find similar reports in a lot of Paul's letters, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. So the structure of this prayer report that we're going to study today is similar to what you might find in some of Paul's other letters. But what we're going to do is outline this prayer report, but I also want you to use this prayer report as a model for you in your own personal prayer time with the Lord. Paul outlines a great model for us to use in our time with the Lord. So here's how we're going to organize it. First, Paul has a prayer of thanksgiving. Then he has a prayer of intercession, followed by a prayer of praise. So a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of intercession, and a prayer of praise. And we're going to talk about what all of those things mean. Number one, a prayer of thanksgiving. Look in your Bibles or in your scripture journal if you brought it with you. Circle that phrase in your notebook in verse 15 for this reason. Now, you need to know something about your Bible that you have in your hand right now. Chapters and verses and subtitles and divisions are a completely man-made thing. These were not originally in the text. Chapter divisions first happened in the 13th century. And the first complete Bible to have chapters and verse divisions was in 1555. So we're talking about when the entire Bible was constructed and put together and bounded in a very nice copy, the first one that had chapters and verses and subsections was not until 1555. The first English Bible that had chapters and verses wasn't until 1560. Now, why am I giving you that history of Bible knowledge? Because you need to realize when you're studying, especially Paul's letters, 
that Paul is not completing a thought after each verse. He's not even completing a thought many times after each chapter. These are one letter written at one time. And so what happens in our chapter and our verse divisions is we tend to take a chapter and, and put it in a vacuum. But no, chapter 2 looks back to chapter 1. The second half of chapter 1 looks back into the first half of chapter 1. So in verse 15, you see that phrase, for this reason, for what reason? Circle that phrase, draw an arrow back up into verses 13 and 14. This is what Paul is writing for. For this reason, what reason? Because the brothers and sisters in Ephesus had been sealed with the Holy Spirit, and they will get the glorious inheritance, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. So Paul wants you to know in verse 15, for this reason, back up to the fact that they are followers of Jesus, they have been filled with the Holy Spirit, they are sealed with eternal life when they die. For that reason, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now he's praying for them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. But he's thankful for them for a specific reason. And that reason is recorded in verse 15. Because he has heard of their faith, number one, faith in the Lord Jesus, and then number two, their love toward all the saints. So Paul is giving a prayer of thanksgiving for the Ephesian brothers and sisters. Why? Because they have love for Jesus, strong faith, and they have love for one another. Now, I can resonate with this. Sometimes, it doesn't happen often, but every once in a while when I go to bed, I'll have a spout of wakefulness. Or, excuse me, spout? A bout of wakefulness. Okay? I wake up and I can't go back to sleep. Now, the world would tell me that's when you get on your phone and you search Facebook or Twitter or you turn the television on and you go get a midnight snack, whatever. But to prevent myself from doing that, I begin to think about people that I can pray for. I figure that's a very productive use of me not being able to sleep. And you know, the people that often come to mind are the people that I'm looking at right now in this room. And I'm filled with gratitude in the same way that Paul talks here. Why am I thanking God for you, some of you, I'm kidding, all of you, in that moment? I'm thanking God for you because of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for one another. That is a great encouragement to me. And I'm giving thanks to God the Father for your faithfulness in the Lord Jesus and your love for one of another. Think about it in your own life. When you see a brother or sister in Christ during the worship service that is worshiping God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, does that not move you? Does that not make you thankful for the strong faith that that person has? When I see brothers and sisters in Christ in this room greeting one another before or after the service, I'm filled with joy and thankfulness. Why is that? Because that's what the body of Christ does. We care for one another. That's how Paul felt about this church. He is thanking God for them because he sees their faith and he sees their love for one another. So let me ask you the question. Are you praying for people 
in this congregation. Not praying for their sicknesses and their needs. I'm assuming you're doing that. But are you praying prayers of thanksgiving for the brothers and sisters in this room? God, thank you that you have put so-and-so in my life. Because when I see them, I am moved with gratitude. Let me encourage you to do this. If you're in a community group, and everyone should be in a community group, we encourage you to do that. Think of or get the list of people in your community group from your teachers. Get all the names, all of the couples, all the individuals. Divide those names out over seven days and spend a few moments every day praying for three, four, five individuals from your community group. Here's what happens when you pray for people. Number one, when you pray for people, you're less likely to hold a grudge against them. You're also less likely to be angry at them. You're also more likely to where if you just sort of like that person, or maybe you didn't like that person, if you regularly begin praying for them, guess what God will do to your heart? He will change your heart. You will begin having love towards that person that once annoyed you or once irritated you. Because when we pray for people by name, God changes our hearts towards that brother or sister that we are praying for. Thanking God that he has placed individuals in your life that motivate you to love God and love people deeper that will enhance your prayer life. Paul does it in this passage. He's modeling it for us. He wants us to be praying for one another. Beyond their needs and sicknesses, he wants us to be praying prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of gratitude for those in our midst. What an encouraging thing when a brother or sister comes up to me and says, I was praying for you this week because I'm so thankful that you're our pastor. What if you said the same thing to a brother or sister in your community group or someone that you see every single week? God brought you to my mind this week, and I want you to know that I'm thankful for whatever attribute you want to say in that moment. Now, Paul says in verse 16 that he does not cease to give thanks for them. No, Paul's not saying that he's praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but rather the posture of his heart is always one of prayer. If we're not careful, I do this, sometimes we compartmentalize our prayer time to a specific part of the day. So we have our Bible reading time, and we say, that is my prayer time. But what Paul is actually illustrating for us here is that your prayer time does not have to be compartmentalized to just the time that you spend in God's Word every day. You can pray while you're driving. You can, with your eyes open. You can pray when you wake up. You can pray when you go to bed. You can pray when you're on the treadmill. Some of the best prayers I have are when I'm running at the gym every morning or I'm on the Stairmaster. God brings people to my mind. He brings things that I need to bring before him. So utilize all of the day with a posture of prayer the way that Paul illustrates here to pray for others, to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I do not cease to pray. Now we know Paul slept. We know he had other activities, so he doesn't mean every second of every day, but rather have a posture of praying as you go throughout your day. Number two, 
He also talks in this passage, and he models for us a prayer of intercession. Now, intercession is a big, fancy word. Intercession means that you pray on behalf of others. Not prayers of thanksgiving, but you pray on behalf of others for their needs. You intercede on behalf of a brother or sister in Christ. The intercessory prayer section of this letter starts in verse 17, when Paul is clearly now directing his prayers, interceding for the church at Ephesus, and what specifically does he pray for? Well, look at your Bibles. Number one, he would give you, the God that is, would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Are you confused? Why would Paul pray for God to give the church at Ephesus the Holy Spirit? Verse 13 and 14 just told us that these believers had been what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit. So what's Paul talking about here? He's not talking about them getting the Holy Spirit that happens in the moment of conversion when the Spirit of God regenerates our hearts and we are now a part of the family of God. No, the Spirit of wisdom, Paul says. For what reason? So that they can understand and have revelation in the knowledge of God. The Holy Spirit is your seal, yes. But one of the other functions that the Spirit of God gives us is to teach us and reveal God's Word to us as we read it. Look at what Jesus himself, who teaches on this role of the Spirit in John 14, verse 26. Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So yes, the Holy Spirit is your seal, but the Holy Spirit is vitally important every time you open up this book. If you are in Christ today, yes, you have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is also the one who helps you understand what you are reading. For example, have you ever read a passage of Scripture before that perhaps you've read 10, 15, 20 times, but for some reason that day or in that moment when you read that specific passage, God shows you something that you've never seen before? I hate to break it to you. That's not your intelligence. That's the Spirit of God. It happened to me just this week. As you know, we're going through the Bible together. Let me show you what God showed me. Turn in your Bibles or just listen. Genesis chapter 12. We were reading that earlier this week in our Bible reading plan. We're now about in the mid-20s in Genesis. And earlier this week, I was reading about the call of Abram in Genesis 12. A very well-known passage of Scripture. All seminary students, all theologically trained people spend a lot of time in the early chapters of Genesis. And I was reading, beginning in verse 10... Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, or Sarai at this time, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. 
Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is a really sorry moment for Abraham. And as I was reading this passage for who knows how many times, something stood out to me, specifically in verse 13, that my life may be spared for your sake. And I wrote down in my Bible, Abram would rather spare his own life and allow Sarah to die, whereas Jesus spared his own life or didn't spare his own life in order that we might what? Live. Jesus is the better Abraham in this passage. Abraham said, Sarah, go for it. I would much rather live and let you die. The covenant is with me. I need to stay alive. So say you're my sister. And if you die, so be it. But I got to stay alive. And yet in the New Testament, Jesus who had done nothing wrong, said, I will die in your place, in my place, so that if you repent of your sin and trust in Christ, you might live. Jesus is the opposite of Abraham. He is a better Abraham. That happens when you study the scriptures. The Spirit of God moves. Can't explain it. Wasn't expecting that to happen that morning in my time with the Lord, but that is how the Spirit of God works. So Paul is praying that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him would flow in the hearts and minds of the people at Ephesus. Paul illustrates the role of the Spirit elsewhere in one of his letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. He says this, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit teaches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You are not smart enough to understand this book on your own. I am not smart enough to understand this book on its own. Yes, there are secular scholars that study the Bible, but they do not understand and interpret the Bible the same way that we do. We have the Spirit of God. When you approach God's Word, you have the ability to understand it if you are in Christ. Paul prays for the Spirit of wisdom and for revelation so that, in verse 18, the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. And they would specifically be enlightened in three ways. There are three indefinite clauses here. So if you have the ESV, every one of those clauses begins with what. You can circle that in your Bible. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might. Let's define hope here. Here's how we use hope. I hope Alabama wins tomorrow night. I hope the preacher stops talking soon. I hope the restaurants are not crowded when we get out of here in a few minutes. 
That's not the type of hope that Paul is talking about here. That's wishful thinking. That's not the hope that Paul means. One commentator said it like this. Hope for believers is not the world's wishful thinking, but the absolute certainty that God will make true what he has promised. That's biblical hope. Biblical hope is not wishful thinking. The hope to which the Ephesian church had been called was a calling into the family of God, which means they will have salvation. That hope is guaranteed. Why is it guaranteed? Because God keeps his promises. It's secure. The Ephesians, and now all believers are called into the family of God for salvation. They have a certain hope because our salvation is secure based on Christ's work on our behalf on the cross. Number two, the second phrase. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I know what you're thinking. You're probably thinking glorious inheritance In other words, the inheritance that I will one day receive. That's not the glorious inheritance Paul is talking about here. He says God's glorious inheritance in the saints. So what is Paul saying? God's inheritance is his people. Think about that for a moment. Think about the ramifications of what that means. God's glorious inheritance is his bride, the church. God could need an inheritance or would even want an inheritance? Do you see how much value that places on your life now? If you are in Christ, one day when Jesus returns, God will be receiving his glorious inheritance, which is the bride of Christ. You now, if you didn't already know it, you have value. God is looking forward to the day when you come into his presence. He is calling us, his bride, his glorious inheritance. You matter deeply to God. So much so that Paul says, you are his glorious inheritance. And then number three, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believes. Paul wants the Ephesian church to know the greatness of God's power. In fact, it is so great that it cannot be measured. God's power is off the charts. It has no limit. We see evidence of this from Genesis to Revelation, but let's do a quick tour through some of the Bible. We see God's evidence and his power on display in the flood that lasts over 40 days in Genesis, in the splitting of the Red Sea in Exodus, in the walls of Jericho that come crumbling down in Joshua, when he makes the sun stand still in the middle of a battle, when he gives Gideon and a mere 300 men the power to defeat the Midianites in the book of Judges, when Jesus walks on water, and when Jesus turns water into wine. God's power cannot be measured. Immeasurable, Paul says. But here's the key phrase in that passage. He says, and now I have to find it, toward us who believe. 
Stop for a moment. What is Paul teaching here? Hope is only available to those in Christ. Wishful thinking can be available to everyone. But the type of hope that Paul illustrates to those in Ephesus are those that have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no hope in the way that Paul is talking about here. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no way to be a part of God's family. Have you ever heard the very popular phrase, we're all God's children? Biblically speaking, that's not true. We're not all God's children. All have been created by God. But only his children are the ones that repent of their sin and trust in faith. We're not all in the family of God. And number three, those that are not in Christ do not understand the immeasurable greatness of his power. So what do we do? We pray. We pray that the Spirit of God would open up people's eyes and hearts and that they would come to understand the hope that Paul talks about here. That they would come to understand that they can be a part of the family of God and they can know at least somewhat the immeasurable riches of his power towards those who believe. So if you are not in Christ today, read this passage. Ask the Spirit of God to enlighten your hearts, to convict you of your sin, and to trust in Christ. That is the prayer of intercession that Paul brings before the believers in Ephesus. And then he ends this passage with a prayer of praise. Look at verses 20 to 23. The ultimate display of God's power was in the resurrection of his son. Verse 20, God put this power to work in Christ when he what? Raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. It's not just that Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, that's important and our faith hinges on it, but God did more than that. He seated him at the right hand of the Father. This is a position of power. To be seated at the right hand of God is to be seated in the place of honor. When you read the Gospels and you see the disciples bickering over this exact point, who is going to sit at Jesus' right and his left? And Jesus basically says, as nice as he can, that's not for you to decide. But what he really meant was, be quiet, you don't know what you're talking about. To be seated at God's right hand is a position of honor and power exclusively reserved for Jesus. Verse 21, it's not just that he has the position of authority, that's important, but God also allows him to exercise that authority in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So begin naming in your mind powerful rulers throughout history. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Nero, Constantine, Charlemagne, Henry VIII, Queen Elizabeth, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Franklin Roosevelt, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, none of them sit on a throne. 
They will all fade away one day, if they haven't already, into the pages of history, and they will turn into a lecture in eighth grade social studies. And Jesus will still be seated on his throne. No earthly leader has any power if it was not given to him by God the Father. So if you ask me, am I scared about the condition of our country or the condition of our world, my answer is a resounding no. Because God and his Son and the Spirit, the triune God is in heaven, and they are completely sovereign over everything that happens in this world. We're going to be just fine, brothers and sisters. So make the gospel known, love people, pray for your family members, for God's protection over their lives, and rest knowing that when you put your head on that pillow at night, God is still at work. It is not up to you. He's not going anywhere. Take a nap this afternoon. You'll be just fine. All things are under his feet. Being seated at the right hand of God, as I told you, is only the position of authority. God actually allows Jesus to exercise that authority. Have you ever known anybody that was in a position of leadership, but they had no power to do anything? Maybe your boss? Maybe somebody you know that they have the title, but there's other people behind the scenes pulling the strings. Not the case with God. There is no puppet master. God is on his throne. Jesus has seated at his right hand, and God has given his son the power to exercise all authority over all creation. This is a quotation from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6. Nothing is outside of Jesus' control. He's over all of it. We might not know in this life the reasons why things happen. We might not know the reason why God spares his judgment on some in the present day, but we can trust that nothing takes him by surprise. We can trust that he has perfect justice. We can trust that he will right every wrong. Why can we trust that? Because his word says he will. That's the final authority. And Paul also points out that Christ is head over the church. Don't forget this. I'm not the boss of this church. You're not the boss of this church. The deacons are not the boss of this church. Jesus is the boss of his church. We all submit to him as the head. But there is a connection between us in this room and Christ. Paul uses the human body as an illustration. Christ is what? The head of the church. And the church is his what? His body. So Apply this with me for a moment. Follow the logic of what Paul is teaching here. If Christ is the head of the church and his bride is the body, everyone in this room who's professed faith in Christ, you are a part of the body. How can somebody who claims to be a part of the body remove themselves from the body for whatever reason and then still claim that Christ is is the head? The answer is, you can't. Brothers and sisters, if you claim that this is your church, get to church. Be a part 
of the body. Follow the logic of what Paul is teaching here. If one claims to be in Christ, who is the head of the body, which is the church, how can one remove themselves from the body or only have a casual connection to that body and still claim that Christ is the head? The answer is you can't. And if people have casual connections, if it's convenient, if nothing else is going on, that's when I'll insert myself into the body. If that's the mentality that Christians have, then it is a legitimate question to ask. Is that person a Christian? Has that person truly been converted? Having a casual understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ, Jesus doesn't understand that type of thinking. We have to be connected to the head. And we are connected to the head when we are a part of the body. Paul ends this passage with a tricky little phrase. It says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, it's tricky for us in English. The reason it's tricky for us, in the Greek, Paul is using alliteration. And he's using the Greek letter pi to make the alliteration possible. But when you transfer it over into English, it becomes a little murky. And so if you read commentaries, you'll see pages and pages and pages on what in the world Paul means here. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Basically, Paul is saying this. The church, which is Christ's body, is filled by Christ. And Christ is being filled continuously all of the time by his Father. Thielman, another commentator, says this. God has given Christ to the church in his role as victor and head over all things, including the enemies of God and his people. Christ and the church, his body, are one. Thus, Christ's victory is also the church's victory. The church wins. Why does the church win? Because Christ has won. We live victorious today. That is not prosperity gospel. That's not self-help. That's straight out of Ephesians. When Jesus returns for his bride, he will consummate, complete the victory that was already started when Christ died and was resurrected. So until that day returns, we walk around confidently knowing that Jesus has won. And we can rest knowing that Christ has conquered sin in our lives. And when he returns, he will conquer all evil for all time. And that's the way that Paul wants us to pray. Father, we thank you. What a powerful model of praying that Paul gives us in this passage. I pray that we would pray the same way that he prays here. That we would pray prayers of thanksgiving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters. And that we would ultimately praise you, the God who makes it all possible. May we praise you. May we give thanksgiving for others. And may we intercede on behalf of others. That's the model that Paul gives us here. May we do that in our own lives. Help us to pray for one another, to love one another, 
to be moved in our spirits because we see the deep faith that we have for you and the love that we have for one another. God, if there's anyone here today who does not know you, I pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray that you would help them to repent of their sin, to trust in the finished work of your son on the cross, and that they would submit to your leadership. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.